From the Wexner Center for the Arts, you are listening to the Learning and Public Practice Multimedia Guide for Climate Changing on Artists, Institutions, and the Social Environment. You know, when I was in undergraduate school transitioning into kind of being a professional afterwards, I was really interested in Marcel Proust, for better or worse. And I just love the idea that this man, this person, was like in bed, sick most of the time, and his mother would take care of him. And he just like wrote and wrote and wrote all these pages of just like the best paintings I've ever seen. Like his words were better paintings than I've seen paintings. You know what I mean? So, so I just figured like if he can do it, I can do it. In this conversation, we are joined by Basira Khan, one of the featured artists in the exhibition Climate Changing, on artists, institutions, and the social environment, along with my colleague and Climate Changing's curator, Lucy Zimmerman, Associate Curator of Exhibitions, and I am Dion Custer-Edwards, Director of Learning and Public Practice at the Wexner Center for the Arts. Basira, can you take a few minutes to ground us in your work, some of the things you are making towards, thinking about, um, any context you'd like us to know? Mm. It's a really big question because I, I think the one thing that I'm recognizing over time is that I use lots of different materials and different approaches, whether it's moving images, photography, collage, paper collage, sculpture and installation, you know, and I, and I sew all of that together with performance. So I think what I'm trying to do is create kind of a living being with my work. Um, and I recycle ideas and materials in all the different kinds of works that I'm doing. And some of the kind of verbs I would use would be assimilation, displacement, dislocation, but then also fluidity and also like harmony. Um, and so I like think about the kind of oil and water scenario with these kinds of um, lived experiences. For example, I'll think up, a, it's almost like a fashion line. So like every fall, I'll be like, this fall, I'm going to concentrate on surveillance. This fall, I'm going to concentrate on protection. This fall, I'm going to, you know, and so I think about that and then those works kind of fall into those categories in a kind of natural form because every year as a, you know, a citizen of this particular location in the world, we're sort of met with these new circumstances and that's where the themes come, come from. I think it's interesting, this idea of um, the, the watching, like where where the watching is happening and, and this idea of surveillance. I wonder if dreams are also looking or could Absolutely, be watching. Yeah. And then I also wonder if so, I'd love, I'd love to hear you sort of talk a little bit about that. And, and also is alone staring at us too? Like this idea of alone, is that kind of constantly kind of kind of watching also? I don't know. Yeah, I feel like alone is a kind of, um, there is a kind of spirit to that um, 
And maybe like, okay, I'm going to say this. I haven't thought it through, but you're putting the seed in my mind, like alone and surveillance are cousins. And so they breed each other. So that's kind of an interesting concept to think through. One of the questions I had or things I wanted to talk about was how, how you use your body um, in, in your work as a, as a site, as a subject, as a material. I think about your work a lot in terms of how your work is um, an extension or effect of what, what's happening to you and responding to the world around you. But you said, you said something about when there's not a space that you think of your body kind of, or you said that I am the space. Um, so could you talk about the use of your body in your work? Yeah, well, around the time when I was in graduate school, it was like 2010 and, and through 12. And I was really starting to get serious about this idea of, of like painting isn't a place where I can actually do and say and communicate in a safe way because there's too much subjectivity. And so I have to actually impress upon my house and I always think about my body as a house. And I think it's like a very common Eastern philosophical thing to say is that your body is your temple. And so instead of it being my temple, I kind of just think about this as architecture. And I just happened to be at a school at Cornell University where they have, you, you're not an art student unless you're kind of injected into their architecture department. Um, and so I was able to really think about, um, you know, myself navigating that space as architecture, as space. Um, and so every time I make an object, even if it's a two-dimensional object, I think of it as a sculptural manifestation of my body, like an extension of my body. And though sometimes I'm not present, there's a kind of performativity of that, being a satellite of my body that sort of absent presence of your body. I, I think about that a lot when I was able to go to New York and see your show Snakeskin in the gallery and you were talking about the scale of the columns and how they're six feet wide. You were thinking about yeah, yeah. Your, your wingspan, but also like what can fit through a door, what can go up the stairs in a building that doesn't have an elevator. And then also about the weight um, of them and that they have this the, the hollow foam core can be um, a conceptual um, device or conceptual kind of material, but also I remember you and Simone very gleefully just kind of like pressing. Yeah, and I, I, I wanna make substantial kind of like, you know, Arthur Jaffa sized airplane wheels with chains, but I, I don't think that I would feel comfortable making an object that I can't potentially move by myself and the agency of being able to move that. And so I tend to work in multiples, like Braid Rage is a huge installation, but it comes apart in, in multiples. There's like all these little parts to it. And so all the little parts become a huge project. Um, and then as you, as you pointed out, um, snakeskin is a huge Corinthian column that is uh, dissected and the interior of the column is made out of foam core, which is an architectural material that actually indeed, um, you know, like mini malls and things that you see on the sides of highways, they actually use that material to build up these like really quick 
um, marketplaces. And so you're right. Like that was just luck. I was like, I want to make this light, but then also this is really conceptually tight. So <laughs> sometimes things just kind of like they're magical. They just fall into place. You probably walk through space with with an inscribed sense. You know, like there's something very expository about the way you think about your life, but then there's something that is always, it's not that you have to deflect what others think of you. It's just that there is a certain kind of psychology to this. And I think that there's a, there's a kind of sense of like, a critique that you learn early on in, in, in within visuality and that might allow for you to kind of have a third eye so that you can see through the things that are already there to like actually maybe see what what the perspective of the artist is. I appreciate I appreciate that. No, I, I definitely appreciate that. And I, I think that, that that kind of embodying a space like a body being in a space embodying yeah. i mean there's just um there's some things already happening there's maybe an awareness that's already there and so yeah. when you encounter someone else who kind of is, is also operating or embodying that kind of awareness yeah you're that. able to have a little bit of a third eye about um the way that you see that visual working and so you can tap deeper in um, because, I mean, I'm not going to deny that, like, growing up, I don't know that you both know this, but my mom was, um, you know, it's like, they call her a seamstress, but she was actually a fashion designer. She was making her own cuts and designs, and she went to school to to make, um, you know, so, so because you're coming from a space, um, she actually was raised in Bangalore, India. Um, so when you're coming from a space like that, you don't have like PhD, like master's classes, these different kinds of genres of, I mean, we, you know, as a society, like a global society, all these different spaces come up in different ways. Right. And so a lot of people would leave I mean, it's it's hard to explain because there's a lot of political unrest in so many places in the world, um, specifically within the black and brown kind of diaspora, South Asia, Africa, you name it. But there are people that leave these spaces specifically just to get higher education, right? And these people end up in like podunk areas of America because that is where the huge universities are. Like Ithaca College, Ithaca, uh, Cornell University, there's nothing there other than the university. Um, and so that also it like psychologically plays into a lot of my, um, my own tropes that I try to play with because my family kind of came from political unrest. We're like very kind of biracial, but there's a lot of um, parts of my identity I don't have access to. So there's like a, a lot of unknowing and speculation. Um, and so then you get to a very small town, specifically Denton, Texas, 
because my father was excellent and he was so excellent that he was able to take the political unrest and do something with that. And so he, you know, he started a school, um, a, a, he helped start the first native school in Bangalore, India called Alameen College. And it was for like, specifically for natives, it, it, there was no Catholic missionary thing happening there. And he taught chemistry. And so he was able to, to, to work so hard to like, um, develop these uh, kinds of departments that there was like a twin college in Denton, Texas, UNT, so that he was able to go there. And that's how we ended up in the United States because because I because I grew up in such a strange ancillary space like I didn't grow up in New York City I didn't grow up in Houston I didn't grow up in Chicago I didn't you know I didn't grow up in LA like my work is just so particularly strange and down home in a way it's almost like domestic weird punk or something and that is the, those are the kinds of close reads that I'm really anticipating and I'm excited to do with, you know, both, both of you, but then the world. But I do understand that, you know, being a Muslim person in this country, I do see materials in a specific way and like veiling and draping and seeing those silhouettes is something that I would see on a daily basis. Whereas if you lived in Texas and you weren't Muslim, you were always wearing shorts or bikinis because it's hot there. And so that maybe you would see a silhouette in a different way. And, and I appreciate that, but that's, that is a more productive way to talk about the body and embodiment and material than to simply say hijab veil. Would you say that for snakeskin, that that was a little bit of a play on that, the way that you use material as as a skin to kind of cloak or choke yeah you know uh, you're just picking up again on that on on the uh the way that like covering to cover is um something that comes natural to me even when I'm wearing a cute little thing where I'm revealing I always in mentally I'm like I'm covered is like a mental, we, we call it mental hijabis. There's like a joke, mental hijabis. Okay, you wear the hijab in your, in your brain, but you know, you're not physically attributing yourself with a hijab. But um, the Kashmiri rugs, there's so much politics within the graphics and the histories and the coming together of people who are making and weaving these rugs. I figured to take that power or the empowerment of that history and squeezing out this monolithic sim symbol of power, the Corinthian column. Everywhere in the world, you see these Corinthian columns and they're always adorning a bank or some sort of municipality or some sort of museum space. Something that reminds us of Amer uh, like American imperial exceptionalism or colonization it, these are this, this is what it reminds me of um, and I think it probably reminds everyone else of that too 
And so I thought if I choked it out, that could be like beneficial in a way. The snakeskin part of it is I was thinking about power and there was a lot of conversation before COVID because the show opened in November, 2019, right? So this was like right before Wuhan. The cases were showing up in Wuhan or that that we knew of. Um, and so I was thinking about uh, the way that a snake moves through space. First of all, it's always feminine. Even biblically speaking, it's the woman who like you can't really trust. It's the woman who's like, you always have to keep an eye on the snake. Okay. And then the way that it moves side to side, it moves distinctively differently than any other kind of creature on the planet. Um, then I was thinking about the way that it digests food or information. It like waits until it's the same size of its prey. It waits. Then when it, when it knows that it can like handle it, it devours it and it sits and it digests over time. And then the only way to really kind of reform yourself and move on to the next thing is to, is to take the skin. The skin has to come off completely and it kind of turns into a new snake. And so I was thinking about, at the time there was so much talk about burn it down, burn it down. Like we need to get rid of the system completely. And I was just thinking like, what if you digest it and just like choke it out? And then through doing that, through digesting it in that way, you eventually like kind of leave an archive of your skin and then you move on to do this next thing. And that's really what, what snakeskin was about for me. I think the last question that I had and um, was, and it's sort of been weaving its way throughout our conversation, but what does institutional critique mean to you and how does it show up in your work. Um, I think of you and most of the artists in the show as, as systems thinkers um, uh, who do look at structures and um, whose work engages in, in imagining um, or building otherwise. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? You know, I went through colleges and graduate schools and did some residencies. And so in and of itself, like I, I was a part of institutions. Um, and as I was going through those systems, I realized the distinct behavior or dissent or misbehavior that like I presented. And I think that I internalized it as failure because I never quite got, you know, the like respect from my colleagues that I assumed I would get, or I never quite received the accolades from like the graduate school or like whatever residency that I wanted to receive. But I think looking back, you know, this is my next phase in life, right? But looking back at all those experiences, I think that I was doing exactly what I needed to do. And there's no way at that time in history that those institutions would want to give me and provide me with support and accolades because I was questioning what they were doing. 
Um, and so that's the way I feel like I fell into institutional critique. It was a, it was almost like at the anvil hit my head. Like it's not something that I strategized. And so it's hard for me to answer it because though I can see where I'm questioning institutions and systems and economies in my work and, you know, even like doing a little bit of research and reading, I don't think that I strategize to that genre of art making. And I don't want to take that away from people who's made that their life's work. I feel like that's the way I can answer that. Yeah, that's great. And I think this, um, how, how your body has kind of come to or moved through these spaces and that as a form of a different form of institutional critique in itself is sort of what I, what I imagined. I have this, I had pulled up when I was preparing for this, um, again, Sarah Ahmed's book, um, Queer Phenomenology. Mm-hmm. And there's this passage that I have your name written next to. Um, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah so I, I can read it really quickly and we can cut this from the interview, but she says, so yes, we can remember that some spaces are, are already occupied. They even take the shape of bodies that occupy them. Bodies also take the shape of spaces they occupy and of the work they do. And yet sometimes we reach what is not expected. A space, however occupied, is taken up by somebody else. When bodies take up spaces that were not intended to, that they were not intended to inhabit, something other than the reproduction of the facts of the matter happens. The hope that reproduction fails is the new hope for new impressions, for new lines to emerge, new objects or even new bodies which gather and gathering around this table. This new would not involve the loss of the background indeed for bodies to arrive in spaces where they were not already at home, where they are not in place involves hard work. Indeed, it involves painstaking labor for bodies to inhabit spaces that do not extend their shape. Having arrived, such bodies in turn might acquire new shapes and spaces in turn acquire new bodies. So yes, we should celebrate such arrivals. This new is what is possible when what is behind our background does not simply ground us or keep us in place, but allows us to move and allows us to follow something other than the lines we have already taken. Yes, women philosophers do gather and have gathered creating impressions. Our task is to recall their histories of their arrival and how this history opens up spaces for others that have yet to be cleared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that's the other thing is, that's the trick is like, once you receive the like senses of empowerment, it's it's very important to shift it to the younger breeds. Mm. If you don't do that work, you're not doing the work. For more information about this exhibition, visit wexarts.org. And you can find Becerra at BecerraConStudios.com. Thanks for listening.